morning, everyone. My name is Kent Sinclair. I'm co-chair of the uh, Boston Bar Association Solo and Small Firm Forum. And uh, my section, along with the international section of the BBA, is very pleased to be able to present uh, uh, this program this morning. Um, it's not even morning for everyone. Uh, Mark Ellis, Dr. Ellis, is coming to us from London. I believe you're in back in London now. Is that right, Mark? Good. Uh, and so today we're going to talk about accountability for atrocities, uh, uh, for, for atrocity crimes in Ukraine. Um, I'm going to do just a brief introduction, and then we're going to have um, a presentation through an interview format. Um, and so, uh, uh, Professor uh, Ionis, uh, let me pronounce your name. Could you pronounce your name correctly? I don't want to do the disservice of mispronouncing it. Sure, it's Yanis uh, Kalpuzos. Yanis Kampolzas will uh, lead the uh, lead our uh, interview format here. Uh, uh, professor Kampolzas is a uh, visiting professor at Harvard Law School. He has also taught at King's College and City University in London, uh, University of Notre Dame, Boston University. Um, uh, he's uh, among other uh, notable uh, uh, achievements. He's a co-founder of the Global Legal Action Network. Um, and, and one of the things that the Global Legal Action Network is doing is working with Bill and Kat, a Netherlands-based investigative journalism group, as part of a justice and accountability investigation of violations of international law and the conflict of Ukraine. Uh, much of his work focuses on issues around war and occupation, environmental justice, um, migration and border violence, um, uh, and new weapons technologies and the role of non-state armed groups in armed conflicts. Um, fascinating uh, 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 academic work that you're doing that's being actualized, uh, among other things, through the Global Legal Action Network and very well qualifies you uh, to uh, lead uh, this interview of Dr. Mark Ellis, who I will uh, next introduce. Dr. Ellis is uh, uh, the executive director of the International Bar Association, a role that he's uh, played for a little over 20 years, about 22 years now, I think. Um, for those of you who don't know, the International Bar Association uh, is comprised of 190 national bar associations and has in excess of 80,000 members around the world. Um, I've had the privilege of knowing Mark uh, for uh, uh, about 30 years now in his prior role before working at the um, uh, International Bar Association as their executive director. He was the executive director and really creator of the American Bar Association's Central and East, uh, uh, Central European and Eurasian Law Initiative, um, a program that pro uh, provided technical, uh, that provided technical legal assistance to uh, 28 countries in Central Europe and the former Soviet Union. Uh, and I had the privilege of being one of the liaisons who went out into the field in the early days of Sealy, uh, and that's how I got to know Mark. Um, his educational background is a BS and a, and a Juris Doctorate degree from Florida State University. He has a PhD from King's College in London, uh, twice a Fulbright Scholar, uh, at the uh, Economic Institute in, uh, in Zagreb, uh, Croatia. Um, he uh, has worked as a legal advisor to the International Commission on Kosovo. It's appointed by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe uh, to advise on the creation of the Serbian, uh, 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 Serbia's war crime tribunal, uh, actively involved in the Iraqi high tribunal. He's um, consulted um, on uh, the defense team for a criminal, for a, a Cambodian war crimes tribunal um, prosecution. Those are just to name a few of his activities. Um, what underlies Mark's uh, career here is not just his uh, professional interest in, uh, in, in these activities, but a daily commitment um, and a deep commitment to the rule of law and it's, and the rule of law serving as a critical foundation to democracy and civil society. And I've seen him actualizing that for three decades and we're gonna to get to hear 
some more about it. So the brevity of my introductions are in no way meant as a slight to our uh, presenters today. I just want to get on with the substance. And I think I've talked long enough to let uh, let let participants who are running a bit late join. So uh, let me hand it over, uh, uh, Dr. Kalosis, please. Thank you so much, Kent. And, and indeed, there's a there's quite a lot of substance to cover uh, because uh, because of the magnitude of uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, as well as the the extent uh, of the of the violations of international law that are being observed on the ground, uh, as well as the unprecedented, uh, I would say, extent of mobilization uh, of uh, investigation and potential accountability practices associated uh, with this war. Uh, and indeed, uh, there's no one better to to talk about this than uh, than Dr. Ellis. Uh, who has been spearheading a lot of these efforts uh, has been present on the ground as well as pioneering some of these mechanisms. Uh, and we will try in a uh, sort of interview format that we hope will also, you know, animate this, this conversation uh, for, our, for our audience uh, to cover quite a lot of material and maybe connect a few dots that are um, associated with, with this material. Uh, and we will try to discuss a range of issues, uh, starting from uh, potential uh, mechanisms and fora for accountability uh, for violations of international law committed in Ukraine, uh, perhaps highlighting some of the pertinent legal issues and legal questions that um, come up uh, in general, but also that may be specific to some of these accountability mechanisms, uh, as well as uh, trying to identify some of the tools that investigators and accountability actors are increasingly using, um, uh, including uh, some of the technological tools that are being, uh, that pre-existed, but are put especially, um, uh, especially uh, in practice um, uh, in the investigation of accountabilities of accountability in Ukraine, and um, throughout this uh, throughout this session, uh, we would welcome the uh, the submission of questions uh, from our audience, which, as mentioned, can be done through the chat, uh, and we will try to address some of these questions uh, along the way. So. Without further ado, Mark, thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, and I guess we can start by uh, the impossible, I suppose, uh, or at least complex question of setting out some of the options uh, and some of the best options uh, for accountability uh, and what the field looks like uh, when we're looking at violations of international law in the war in Ukraine. Well, Jonas, thanks very much, and uh, I wanted to tell everyone that when I, I learned that uh, he was going to be part of interviewing me, I insisted that we have to do this, uh, uh, both of us. So I'll be asking him questions as well, because Jonas's background, as you've heard from Kent, is, is extraordinary. So we'll, uh, hopefully we'll have a great dialogue, and as, as was said, we really encourage uh, all of you to, to put out questions, provocative, whatever you want to do, and we'll have a good, a good time over the next uh, Next 50 minutes or so, and Kent, I want to thank you not only for the uh, for the introduction, but for uh, for the friendship we've had for those 30 years. It's been extraordinary, and to the Boston Bar Association for hosting this. Uh, th this is uh, this is really an extraordinary time, I think, for international uh, justice and accountability. Uh, at least for me, in in all of my professional career, and I've spent a lot of it, uh, as Kent suggested, in on these issues of accountability and, and justice. But and that includes the former Yugoslavia uh, during that war. But I've never seen as much attention placed uh, on accountability as I have on this on this particular incident. And Jonas, you may have feeling the same thing. It's quite extraordinary not just individuals who speak about this, uh, not just politicians, including uh, our, uh, some of my Republican friends that never had any interest in international accountability uh, are, are saying, well, this is where we need to focus our attention, but on governments too. Uh, quite extraordinary, this coalition that's been been created. And, and, and I think that's the foundation and it's, it's being set by the Ukrainians uh, when I was there recently, 
uh, I had discussions on many topics and many issues, but none of them, none of them reached that level uh, more so than accountability. Uh, Ukraine is is uh, is adamant uh, that uh, that there needs to be justice and accountability for the uh, not only for the for the act itself for the crime of aggression, but also for uh, for the crimes that are being committed uh, in in the in the country. Uh, so uh, maybe what I could say, and then I, I want to get. Jonas's view on this too is, uh, and we could dig a little deeper on this. I, I see this as a, 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 a bit of a, a, a mosaic of mechanisms that I think will be used uh, for this accountability and justice in Ukraine. One is gonna be domestic uh, uh, prosecutions. Uh, Ukraine is absolutely focused on that. And I think we can talk a little bit about what are the challenges there on that? Um, the, the second um, will be the International Criminal Court. Uh, I think they, their role, its role will be essential, uh, although limited because of, of the structure of the court, but again, very, very crucial. Uh, I then think we go to this concept of universal jurisdiction, a concept that's been around for a long time, uh, but I think you're going to see it in play here more so than we've 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 done anywhere else. And then finally, uh, the 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 big uh, issue at hand is is a, a a special tribunal for the crime of aggression, and that is brand new. That we we this would be an extraordinary movement, but with huge challenges that exist with, with that. So. Jonas, I don't know if that, it, 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 maybe you could add, it, it, those are the four that I think are, are, are gonna be part of this mosaic. I guess an add-on to that might be uh, some uh, multilateral, bilateral initiatives by some countries as well. Uh, but those, these are the main four ones, but I, I, I may, I don't know if you've got other thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I, I I think you've done a very good job of 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 mapping these, and indeed, yeah, both bilateral and multilateral um, uh, formations between states, as well as between states and international organizations, and between states and the International Criminal Court, are being you know and have already developed uh, at the level of the investigation for sure, and the sharing of evidence, and that's also something that we will uh, come back to uh, in a bit, and I guess. Two, two things to point out uh, in, in relation to, to your remarks is that the one is, as you said, the, the unprecedented nature of the development uh, of this mosaic of uh, potential accountability mechanisms uh, and the way in which this seems to be exceptionally the case um, and in an unprecedented fashion the case. Uh, in the context uh, of Ukraine, uh, which I think you know, it is fair to say that it does reflect the both the the, the magnitudes and the extent of the violations of, of international law, uh, as well as the perceived threat to the international order that is being posed uh, by the invasion. Right, so it is something that is. Um, larger or even or perhaps broader than specifically the question of violations of distinct rules of international law. And it has to do with an unease and a fear uh, around the, the evolution of the international order and the international legal order and the mobilization of international law and accountability mechanisms in meeting and dealing with this with this perceived threat. Uh, and I think that something that may be you know a thread perhaps an underlying thread and perhaps we might also address it further on in our discussion is the extent to which that mobilization and that mosaic of accountability mechanisms including domestic including universal jurisdiction including the icc including the creation of special tribunals and the you know activation or reactivation of global concern over the crime of aggression uh, the extent to which all of these efforts will have an effect on the international legal order uh, beyond the war uh, in Ukraine, right? I think that this is a theme that is to some extent on people's minds and we might um, touch on further on. Um, 
And, and do you see, do, I'm sorry, but I, because this to me is where I think you and I see exactly on the same, and I'd be curious whether our audience thinks so, because uh, you're right. To me, this is not just an issue of Ukraine. And, and uh, for all of us who are looking at it, looking at the media, we know what a devastating, uh, uh, a chaotic situation that it, this is. But you mentioned this international world order, and I, I just have to set forth my own bias on this as well to say, this is what we're facing. Um, if this does not go the way it needs to go, and that is to be able to counter this aggression and to be able to bring some justice, um, I think the world international order, as we know it, as we have established it since World War II, is in jeopardy. So it's not just a, a, a Ukrainian issue. For me, it's a much broader issue, as you say, about mm -hmm. the, the, the international order that we know of today. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's right, and I think that uh, I, I think that that can be, I guess, um, discussed and identified at, at at a number of, of different levels. I mean, on the one hand, you have the the violations of international law, the law applicable in the conduct of hostilities, international humanitarian law, or the law of armed conflict, however you want to call it, uh, on the ground, right? And the extent to which some of these violations. Uh, reach the level of war crimes and therefore entail individual liability for 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 these war crimes, and that's something that the international system has been grappling with uh, for uh, decades, and especially the last twenty years uh, or thirty years, perhaps from the from the from the early nineties uh, onwards. And the question there is, uh, to what extent? The extent of these violations, the the unprecedented interest in uh, providing accountability for these violations, the development of all of these fora for accountability and mechanisms for investigation can really um, uh, address and provide some uh, accountability for these violations. And if it doesn't, then then what does that mean for all of these efforts to address that? Um, I think the other question is the the role of aggression specifically, right? Which is, you know, a distinct uh, set of legal rules, which is uh, the law that governs uh, international law on the use of force by states, and the law that governs the use of force by one state against another state, uh, and that's something that we have seen, uh, frankly, lagging in terms of. Um, its regulation and in terms of the provision of accountability for violations of international law and the use of force and for the crime of aggression. Uh, and that is also something that states that have been spearheading a lot of the calls and efforts for accountability have quite often acted as you know spoilers or have been against accountability for violations of international law and the use of force, including the main powers like the US and the UK uh, and France. And I think that in, in, in the context of the war in Ukraine, we see how central uh, that norm is, right? How central that norm uh, of the uh, non-intervention and non-use of force against another state, including the 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 um, prohibition of annexation of territory uh, of another state how central it is to the uh, international legal order as you said as well as how central it is to all of the violations and all of the violence and all of the uh, war crimes that follow as a consequence of the of the launching of of, of such a war you know you bring up this uh, issue and i think the audience uh, participants might might also have this in their mind because uh, when we talk about international justice, I think we have to temper our expectations. I, I think we all have to do that. As much as I've just explained that at no time in my uh, in, in my life's journey have I seen so much focus on it, but actually there's a potential problem here because the expectations uh, for justice is quite high, and the reality is that if we're looking at bringing to to bringing to, to justice uh, those most responsible for, and now let's move into this crime of aggression, it would have to be uh, uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, and so uh, so we, we, everyone is looking at the Ukrainians, the international community, how do you do that? And the reality is that it's very difficult from a practical point of view uh, mm -hmm. to bring Mr. Putin to justice. 
in any any in any short term, and that deals with legal uh, principles like his head of state immunity that exists for him, and then as you've just indicated, what's the mechanism to use that? Uh, he, he, he for me he could he could be held accountable for uh, under command responsibility for the crimes that are being committed inside right now because I think there's no doubt that he has effective control over what's happening in Ukraine. Whether or not the International Criminal Court decides to pursue him at that level, to me is a really good, really will be a fascinating uh, decision to see if that's gonna take place. But then you've moved on, as you said, the crime of aggression. This has, this has lots, of, lots of crucial issues to it. Uh, is there, a, is, is there a legal basis in international law as it stands now to actually bring a sitting head of state uh, uh, to justice for the crime of aggression? And if so, how do you do it? And for me, it's all about legitimacy. Uh, if an international, if the UN Security Council decided to pursue a sitting head of state, we know that generally that's permissible under law, international law. But if a group of states decide to try to come together and do this, and that's what's being discussed right now, what's the legal basis for it? And how do you get legitimacy for it? Because if you just have a small number of states that are willing to create a special tribunal, which by the way, will take considerable time, does it gain the legitimacy that you need to have? So, and if it's not the right states that are part of it, as you've you said, well, there'll be states that will have no interest in getting involved with the crime of aggression against a, a head of state because they absolutely don't want in the future for that same precedent to be, to be reversed to, towards them. And so will the United States, will Germany, will France, will these major states join in this movement and the demand from, from Ukraine to have a crime of a, a special tribunal for the crime of aggression I think those are really crucial questions, and I'm, I'm not sure any of us have the answer, but there certainly are points I think need to be need to be discussed mm -hmm. in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and and so the to 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 take your important point and try to, as it were, distribute it across the different fora that that we have here, and to try to give a, a an idea and an and, a, and an image to to our to our to our audience. Um, so on the one hand, you have the question of uh, subject matter jurisdiction, right? The different accountability mechanisms that exist, the different tribunals, domestic, international, and potentially special, right? What type of subject matter jurisdiction do they have? Uh, and uh, when it comes to domestic tribunals, it depends on the state. Uh, I, I, you know, most states have established domestic jurisdiction in relation to war crimes, uh, as well as crimes against humanity uh, and genocide. Many states have also uh, established uh, universal jurisdiction associated with perpetration of these crimes, which means that they might also be able to exercise jurisdiction uh, over crimes uh, outside their territory and committed by individuals who are not their nationals. And can we uh, say, can we say on that first one for the audience that really what we're talking about this domestic jurisdiction is just territorial jurisdiction? That mm -hmm. is, if you if you commit a crime on the, if somebody commits a crime on, in my territory, I'll have jurisdiction over that, just as mm -hmm. Ukraine is going to have jurisdiction over that. So yeah. that, that becomes that most solid jurisdictional base, which is why when I mentioned earlier, domestic tribunals for accountability, that's going to be the foremost, I, in my opinion, the foremost mechanism will be domestic, and it will be based on what you just said. It's this domestic territorial jurisdiction right mm -hmm. yeah and they will be the ukrainian courts uh, that indeed have uh, began uh, both investigating and have already conducted a few trials related to uh, to war crimes the other traditional ground of course for domestic jurisdiction is active nationality jurisdiction so it's over crimes committed by uh, a national of that state which in this case would be russia and which of course uh, is um, uh, improbable uh, that Russia would uh, seek to exercise jurisdiction, at least currently. Uh, and then, in fact, yeah, as you said, the universal jurisdiction is an additional 
ground, right, in terms of other domestic jurisdictions having universal jurisdiction over cr crimes committed in other territories. Uh, and the way that the International Criminal Court works is that uh, it pools the jurisdiction of the states that have signed and ratified the treaty, right? So the states that have signed and ratified the Rome Statute, which is the treaty that establishes the International Criminal Court, have provided it with jurisdiction over the crimes committed either in their territory or by their nationals. Uh, and the Ukraine in, 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 in the current context has provided uh, the ICC with such jurisdiction, and therefore the ICC can exercise jurisdiction over the crimes in its statutes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide uh, committed in the Ukraine. But even, it cannot, though it's not, even though it's not a state party. Even though it's not a state party, because uh, under Article 12, Paragraph 3 of the Rome Statute, Ukraine has made a declaration to accept the jurisdiction of the ICC uh, in relation to uh, the conflict. Uh, uh, and um, in, in relation, however, to aggression, uh, that is not the case because of a particular jurisdictional um, uh, framework that applies uh, to the crime of aggression, which exists in the statute and is activated, but uh, the framework, not to go into very sort of complex uh, legal techniques here, but it would require also uh, Russia to have uh, accepted that jurisdiction, which of course uh, is, is, is not the case. And it should be said again that a lot of the states that are mobilizing and spearheading many of the accountability um, uh, efforts have been the ones that have insisted and did insist uh, for the limitation of the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court in relation to the crime of aggression. Um, and, and, and therefore the inability of the ICC. One, one mechanisms that people have mentioned would be for the statute of the International Criminal Court to be amended uh, in order for the ICC to gain jurisdiction over this crime. Unlikely. Uh, which is highly unlikely because indeed it would uh, institutionalize the precedent and it would empower the ICC to exercise such jurisdiction of the crime of aggression in the future um, in a way that many states would, would, would feel very uncomfortable with and specifically also states that are members of the Security Council and are permanent members of the Security Council. The Security Council, which by the way, also has the power to pause investigations of the International Criminal Court for one year and then and then renew that pause. And that also would have uh, resolved uh, at least to some extent the issue of head of state immunity to the extent that states that accept the jurisdiction of the ICC uh, also um, uh, defer to the ICC the power to, to, to try uh, individuals that have that immunity, right? And, and head of state immunity uh, is generally accepted uh, in international law to be a bar for prosecution and for the exercise of jurisdiction in all domestic uh, jurisdictions. Uh, there have been some arguments made that specifically uh, in relation to Ukraine investigations and the Ukrainian exercise of jurisdiction, some of the underlying justifications for uh, head of state immunity, including the good relations between states are lapsing because of the active ongoing uh, armed conflict. But that's an argument and a theory. And it's, you know, uh, it, it's, I think, open to, to, to say to what extent it would be successful uh, in international law as a whole. Could I yeah. add on that, Jonas, this when we talk about head of state immunity, and, and, and I mentioned this earlier, you would mention as well, uh, that we have some, we, we do have restrictions about pursuing Mr. Putin as a sitting head of state, because that's, as we say, that would be the immunity that would be recognized, with the exception, as you say, from an international court or from the Security Council. We know that there's a, there's a, a strange bifurcation in international law that uh, if, you're, if you're pursuing somebody who's a, a sitting head of state, you can do so in an international court like the ICC, but you can't do it essentially outside that. Uh, remit. Um, one day, I hope that that merges together where there's not recognition for immunity for sitting head of state that's committing uh, atrocity crimes. But right now, we don't, uh, we don't have it. But as you've just ended, we can move into functional immunity. And that is that, that, that personal immunity only lasts as long as the person, as long as Mr. Putin is in, in office. As soon as he leaves office, uh, then he can be brought to justice 
um, except for uh, if it's considered that what he's done is was part of the function of his office. But international law has now moved, including the International Law Commission has moved in essence to say, you cannot uh, possibly accept a premise that part of the function of an office was to commit atrocities crimes. We saw that in the Pinochet case, actually, is when we reversed, started moving away from that. So that, that moves to an issue for me about, uh, I've always said that international justice plays the long game. Uh, and, and, and we've seen this with other heads of states, whether it's, it's al-Bashir, Milosevic, Gaddafi, uh, as they're in that position, it's very difficult under international law to hold them account. But eventually, they either get deposed or, uh, uh, or, 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 they, or, or they just leave the office and, and now they become fair game. And this is something that people, I think people need to, need to recognize mm -hmm. as, as part of this journey. There, there is a way still to pursue Mr. Putin and other high-ranking individuals who might be protected from this immunity clause. Uh, I think that's a very good point. So, so, so you're right to distinguish these immunities. And as you say, so personal immunities or status immunities attach to the position, right? And they are limited to the individuals who are at the very top of a, a state apparatus, whereas functional immunity attaches to the act. Uh, to the extent that an act can be attributed to a state, to the extent that an actor is acting for a state, and which in practice, of course, uh, and in this context would apply to all of the soldiers who are fighting uh, in the field, as well as their commanders, as well as the individuals in political positions who are connected to, to these actions. Uh, and, and, and as you said, uh, over the last 30 years, uh, international law has been gradually moving to a position where for international crimes, functional immunities are not recognized as a bar uh, for a prosecution, including domestic prosecution. It, we shouldn't say that this practice is entirely uniform, but I think we could say that it is a clear trend that is being observed, including, as you said, in the International Law Commission, which for those of you that don't know, is a body within the UN system that works on the codification of uh, international law, as well as the clarification of what customary international law rules uh, require. And we see that increasingly in domestic decisions uh, in states, uh, perhaps uh, some of the most recent examples that have been um, celebrated or recognized by some have been uh, decisions in German courts with respect to Syrian perpetrators of uh, torture as a crime against humanity who have been uh, tried and convicted uh, in those Syrian courts and uh, whose functional immunity was not recognized. But I would I want to I want to take up your point about the long game. Uh, and, and indeed, uh, international law or international criminal law plays the long game, but that doesn't necessarily answer the question of what exactly is the long game, right? Yeah. And it may be that the long game is uh, connected to a, a, a party, a state, an actor losing power and uh, ultimately being vulnerable to international prosecution through losing power, which, of course, makes the process of working for accountability inherently connected with the question of political and military power, uh, which is something that we all recognize by looking at the world, at the world, but also something that many of us might find, you know, less than fully satisfactory uh, in, 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 in a variety of ways. And I think that is very closely connected with the, the point that you made earlier uh, around the potential legitimacy of, uh, a, uh, of different accountability mechanisms, including and especially perhaps the accountability mechanisms around the, the crime of aggression uh, and around potentially stripping the head of state and other such um, uh, individuals of their, of their immunity. And, and one thing that we did not mention are the ideas and the suggestions that such a tribunal would not be created by a small number of states 
including states that have been accused in the past for violating international law and the use of force, but would be created by a broader coalition of states, especially if they act through the General Assembly of the United Nations, which is the one body that, at least in quantitative terms, uh, has a degree or a potential of legitimacy uh, in this context. I think this is going to be, I think for the audience too, this is going to be to watch, kind of watch this space. Uh, will the uh, UN General Assembly, I, I, I agree with Jonas that that would be, uh, that, I think that would be the best approach. Um, but where you're getting more uh, uh, traction right now for the tribunal is actually in Europe, is actually here. Uh, th th there's, a, there's a significant movement among European uh, states. Uh, uh, I've been in meetings with a number of them uh, being driven by the Baltics first uh, uh, and then added in there Poland, of course, uh, uh, even the Czech Republic and others. Um, and so my guess is that this tribunal, special tribunal, will be seen perhaps based in Europe because it's a European conflict, a treaty based with Ukraine, because I don't believe that Ukraine should undertake a special tribunal for the crime of aggression. It's an international crime. So I think the international community should be engaged in it. I think they will. Uh, and then try to have buy-ins. So expand that base uh, for uh, for other, other countries to join in. Um, and I think that may be the quickest way of doing it. But I agree with Jonas, if if the General Assembly always all of a sudden woke up and said, yep, let's pursue this, let's put our efforts into uh, a resolution creating it, just that they've just did this week or yesterday, I think, on a, a, a claims commission. So we might get some traction there, but I think right now we're getting a lot more traction in Europe, which is maybe expected. Mm -hmm. Could I turn, uh, one, Jonas, could yeah, I turn to yeah. something you mentioned that is and I alluded to it at the beginning in the sense of the, of the, uh, of the various mechanisms. And, um, and, and that's the domestic ones as well. And you mentioned legitimacy, which I think is crucial. Any one of these mechanisms, whether it's domestic, the special tribunal, universal jurisdiction, not so much the ICC because they're legitimate anyway, really will require a perception of legitimacy uh, and the domestic tribunals in Ukraine, because I've said that that's where you're going to have, when you think about trials, that's where you're going to have the, the most focus, because it makes sense that they will handle most of the cases. But for our audience, each of you has your own expertise in, in your area of practice. You've been practicing for a while. Just imagine trying to create a whole mechanism uh, in Ukraine domestically to focus on these very complicated, very relatively new, not in the sense of the crimes themselves, but in being able to, uh, to put some accountability to them. Needing defense lawyers, uh, education of prosecutors, certainly judges. This is a, this is a really big ask uh, for Ukraine and for the international community. I was really pleasantly surprised when I when I was there for for the week, and I asked about this question uh, about domestic courts, because I said if that's going to be your main focus, how do you ensure legitimacy? And this is one of the real crucial answers to that was we need to make certain that the defense and the defendants are perceived to have had a fair trial. They understand that the, uh, the eyes of the world will be on these mechanisms, these tribunals, uh, uh, domestic jurisdiction mechanisms, and they have to meet international standards of fairness and impartiality. And I thought that was impressive because they are, as we all know, in the midst of this horrendous war, and yet the authorities I spoke to understood that they want to be seen in the eyes of the world as doing this legitimately. They do not want to be seen the way Russia is being seen as creating show trials. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, 
Jonas, I, I assume that that would be one of these real crucial points about legitimacy and being able to say, yeah, we have to ensure uh, the impartiality, but we have to recognize it's not easy. It's not going to be easy at all. So I think that's right. And I think that goes to the heart of some of the issues that international criminal justice has been grappling with. Uh, so you have these tension. On the one hand, uh, you have you need and you require closeness to the crimes, uh, to the violence, to the suffering uh, in order to establish legitimacy. Right. Uh, and international criminal law, including the International Criminal Court, can often be criticized as being quite distant from the situation on the ground and the actors on the ground when they pass judgment. And that has been a refrain, you know, for many years and across different international courts and tribunals, including in relation to Yugoslavia and Rwanda. Uh, including in relation to the International Criminal Court, um, whereas the domestic jurisdictions have that closeness and have that legitimacy. But at the same time, when you have the closeness, you also have a danger of partisanship uh, and you have a danger of being perceived as being biased right? in this context. Uh, so you have closeness and partisanship versus distance and impartiality. Uh, and the question is, how exactly do you square that uh, circle? And as you say, the capacity to develop domestic jurisdiction in a way that in the formal application of rules of fairness of procedure, uh, in terms of the clarity of the legal categories and the crimes that are being um, uh, tried in terms of the process, in terms of the rights of the defendant, in terms of the way that this is a transparent process and the way that this process is communicated both domestically but also internationally has to be and will be crucial. And in this context, we should say that the Ukrainian uh, authorities and prosecutors have done a tremendous work uh, in terms of establishing the mechanisms and working towards uh, both, you know, the actual achievement of fair procedures and the creation of the perception of those fair procedures uh, in, I think, a quite wide an audience. Uh, and that also then poses the question, what is and what should be the, um, the interplay and the collaboration and the cooperation between the Ukrainian justice system and the Ukrainian prosecutor authorities and other potential prosecuting fora. Because in practice, the magnitude of the task is you know, huge in terms of the capacity of any state, in, including and especially a state which is under armed attack and is suffering from the war uh, to deal with. And some degree of collaboration and cooperation will be necessary in terms of establishing accountability for the variety of these crimes. What do you think would be the best, um, you know, um, allocation of resources and type of collaboration in this context? I think it's a great question. And I think uh, uh, as much emphasis that can be on uh, building up the capacity of the domestic judiciary, domestic judicial system, uh, legal system to undertake these trials is, for me, the, the, the best investment we can make, because it just simply makes sense that the majority of the trials for accountability will be in Ukraine. The ICC mm -hmm. will have a limited number, I think very important, uh, uh, you know, crucial individuals, crucial situations. And I think that that's gonna be important. Universal jurisdiction that we've talked about, I think will be limited. I think there'll be investigations. They'll, 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 they'll take the evidence, but they're gonna be limited because the universal jurisdiction principle in many of the countries are in fact limited in what they can mm -hmm. do, but it still be important. We've talked about the crime, the special tribunal for aggression. Politically, that will be challenging. I think it will happen but it's not gonna, it, it, that will be specific. It's a leadership crime that will be specific, focused on Putin and several other high level individuals. So if you put all that aside, you're right back into this domestic uh, jurisdiction. And that's where the international community actually can play a very, very important role. And, mm -hmm. and I think the Ukrainians understand that they need that help. And so whether it's the International Bar Association that has a series of programs now under being undertaken there, other groups, I, I think that's where we're going to 
we're, we're going to we're going to head. I think I think you're right. I will add one point, and I will use this to try to segue to our, our I think our last sort of focus right. area for our discussion. I mean, one of the one of the things that perhaps the ICC may be especially uh, relevant and and helpful is identifying. Uh, certain types of violations that have a relatively systematic nature in terms of the way that they are uh, committed uh, in, in, in the war uh, in Ukraine. Um, and one can think of a variety of examples, but perhaps one that comes to mind and that we are observing in this last phase of the war uh, is related to certain types of targeting practices, uh, for example, against um, uh, energy infrastructure, uh, or against um, um, uh, water and agricultural uh, targets, and uh, the, the legal terminology is objects indispensable to the survival of the civilian population, which pose both, uh, I think, important questions in terms of identifying the way in which they have been integrated into the methods of uh, fighting and the methods of war, uh, and therefore they are not isolated instances of violations of the law of armed conflict, but they form a part of the strategy of the of the party. But they also um, uh, provide special challenges in terms of evidence uh, and proving those violations, uh, especially to the extent that the law of war and international humanitarian law uh, quite often uh, will tend to call for contextual judgment uh, for the establishment of the legality of specific targeting practices uh, in terms of identifying the military or the civilian nature of the target, in terms of the extent of knowledge and intentionality that it can be attributed to a commander and an attacker, uh, in terms of putting all that together to show the certainty of the violation of international law, which poses the question of how do you develop and how do you apply uh, this, the evidentiary proce procedures in proving these uh, types of violations. So the, the ICC prosecutor shortly after the activation of the jurisdiction um, and the prioritization of the investigation in the context of the Ukraine uh, announced that some of the new money that was flowing in the court would go uh, towards establishing the, the prosecutor's uh, expertise uh, in terms of using technological tools for evidence gathering and evidence systematization and analysis. And I know that you uh, and indeed I have also worked on different aspects of that evidence gathering. So I wanted to um, you know, pass the baton to you to talk to us a little bit about this. Well, I, I, I think that's, um, I think this in Ukraine, two things for me has been quite, quite apparent. Uh, one, Ukraine it, it will be, the war in Ukraine will be the most documented from an evidentiary point of view, the most documented conflict in history by a mile. Um, and it, we just, it just so happens that we're, we're meeting at a crossroad where technology now has advanced so significantly in, in the past 20 years, at least since the last major war in, in Europe, in the former Yugoslavia, and now. And then we have one of the, the one of the most aggressive and most uh, uh, heinous uh, series of crimes that are being committed. And um, this has really opened up for technology to play a role, this, which I'll talk about in one second. But the second is Ukraine is uh, is very high in knowledge of technology and use of technology. And this is what's making it quite unique in Ukraine, mm. whereas in other countries, Myanmar, for instance, we're, we're involved with, is very different. Uh, in, in, in Nigeria, very different. But in Ukraine, the knowledge, the use of technology is, is very natural to the Ukrainians. And therefore, bringing in new technology is, is, uh, is, is relatively easy. For the IBA, we had created, and I'll, I'll ask Devon to put it in the chat room, uh, something called Eyewitness to Atrocities. And this was based on this idea that, well, if you're capturing videos and pictures of, of crimes, atrocities, evidence of crimes, um, 
and, and we know that you can go on social media uh, and, uh, and, and see hundreds and thousands of, of, of this, these pictures and, and videos. But the problem is that you have to, if you're going to use those in a, in a court of law, you've got to show, as all, all of you know, as lawyers, a chain of custody. You've got to be able to have the person who's, who took the picture video to say, yes, this is where I was. Uh, this is the day, time, all of that. And most importantly, you have to ensure that it's not been tampered with. The number of videos on, on uh, YouTube that has been proven to be tampered with is extraordinary, easy to do in, a, in, a, in, a, in your regular camera. So we designed something, an app called Eyewitness Atrocities that embeds all of that information that's needed to uh, present that video or picture in a court of law. And we worked with various tribunals over two years to create uh, the technology that's needed. And so the pictures and videos speak for themselves. You don't have to have the user there because all of the information is embedded in the file. It's it's taken and it's sent back to a vault. LexisNexis is our partner. LexisNexis holds all that information, the videos and pictures in a vault until it needs to be used uh, for, uh, for a case. Uh, and most importantly, again, for me, is that it cannot be tampered with. If there's any attempt to tamper with the video or picture, then the app picks that up and it, 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 becomes, it becomes known. So we, we have, pushed the eyewitness and we've worked with the prosecutor's general's office and others um, for this to be used along with other technologies. But this is really quite important. And uh, I think to date since, uh, since February, the end of February, we've got uh, over 30,000 videos and pictures in the vault right now. And it gets back to what Jonas says, a lot of it is able to show patterns. So, the pictures and videos that are being being uh, uh, recorded in different parts of Ukraine are showing, for instance, one of the files we presented to the ICC was on hospitals. So, you know, evidence that 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 there is a, uh, a, 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 a there is a strategic uh, approach from Russia on hospitals, for example, for instance, and there's other areas. And so, uh, this is an example of technology that I think is is uh, is a bit of a game changer. And uh, Jonas, I know you're involved with others, Bellcat and others that are, that are part of this, but I think together we're gonna see technology when we get to the end game of, of, of accountability and the use of evidence in a court of law, I think you're gonna see uh, a significant number of, of evidentiary uh, mm -hmm. pictorial evidence being used in this way. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, you're right. And, and, and on the other, as it were, side, uh, geographically speaking, the, the technology empowers uh, anyone uh, and individuals who are not on the ground uh, to look at everything that is being put out there uh, through open source channels, right, through social media, through a variety of um, communications, and both connect through methods such as the eyewitness app uh, with the individuals who are putting up the images, putting up the, the different types of evidence, right? It may also not necessarily be images uh, and collect, verify, analyze these, these types of evidence, uh, as well as, you know, as you said, crucially, the establishment of the verification, the, the chain of custody, the authenticity of the evidence in a way that can be admissible uh, in a court and can be um, uh, appreciated as pertinent and useful uh, in, a, in, a, in a judicial process. As well as I would, I would say, you know, you said, and th that phrase has been, uh, I think, uh, referred to uh, quite often that the evidence speaks for itself mm. or the, the images speak for itself. It still, though, you know, requires some degree of interpretation in terms of what it actually says, right? Uh, and uh, it is, to some extent, in the nature of that type of evidence that you know specific questions about its interpretation come up. Uh, what does it show, and what does it tell us in relation to what happened in a legally meaningful 
uh, way. You know, when you when when somebody on the ground uploads a picture of a destroyed building, what type of interpretation of that image will help us understand the process, for example, associated with the targeting of that building that shows who did it, when they did it, what they wanted to do, and how does it fit within the legal categories of international humanitarian law and the law of war crimes? And how much can this form part of a prosecutor's or a court's uh, decision-making and establishing guilt? Uh, yeah, it's absolutely true. I think that's those are those are absolutely spot on in the sense of the points as well. Um, I, when I was over in Ukraine, I decided uh, to take a trip up north, uh, where up towards Belarus, where the where the war really started between there and was, as the troops came down to, in essence, take take control over Kiev. Uh, that's where that's where they stopped. But between the time they started moving in, uh, the uh, the atrocities that were being committed there, uh, and we've seen them, uh, 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 we've seen them accelerate elsewhere in Ukraine, was quite extraordinary to see, and particularly this issue of distinction between military targets and civilian targets. There was no distinction at all. It was village after village of of, of just destruction of of civilian. Uh, places, homes, all of that. That, uh, that. that was quite extraordinary. But getting back to this point of evidence, this is really interesting. A lot of it was being rebuilt. Ukraine has this incredible uh, ability to start fixing things and rebuilding quickly. But it, it, even the prosecutor indicated to me that that has caused some problems because they need the evidentiary uh, base there to be uh, to be collected and held so that in turn that can be used later. And this was where pictorial evidence videos become a really important role mm -hmm. because once those once those targets, homes, whatever the pattern might be, or literally are fixed, uh, repaired, it becomes problematic. I had never thought about that until he said, yeah, that's a bit of an issue. So extraordinary mm -hmm. times. I, I would like to... Uh... Take it back to our one of our take this back to one of our general uh, themes uh, and perhaps to close a conversation with this is that the increasing practice by individuals on the ground in terms of documentation and sharing evidence of violations of international law, combined with the increasing mobilization of a variety of specialized and not so specialized actors in the international community and in the world uh, in terms of analyzing, documenting, systematizing, and potentially using that evidence is something that could have significant consequences for the future of accountability and for the future of international criminal justice beyond Ukraine. And that's just one other way in which what is happening currently in Ukraine may be relevant to the future uh, of uh, legal practice in that field. And I think something that may be of increasing and should be of increasing interest to um, domestic practitioners and lawyers uh, in the US and, and across the world. Um, and I hope that this conversation has um, you know, convinced you that this is the case. And on this, uh, we're reaching the hour mark. And I would like to thank you very much indeed, Mark, for uh, participating uh, in this conversation. Uh, and we'll hand it over to, to Kent to close perhaps the proceedings. Well, yes, th thank you very much to both of you. Um, I, I just close out with sort of two comments. Um, first, we had a, uh, in the questions, uh, uh, one of the uh, audience members asked if mm. you could come back in six months and, and uh, for a follow-up discussion uh, because of the fascinating nature of, uh, of our talk today uh, and the importance of it. So uh, we shall see. I won't ask you to commit right now, but certainly uh, I, I think it's worth the uh, Boston Bar Association uh, to continue to explore ways that we can provide uh, commentary and analysis on the legal impacts of what's happening in Ukraine. I'll be uh, back in, in Ukraine in January, and I'll be happy to come back. Jonas and I can come back and talk more about it. Uh, that would be a, a good time that, to do it. That would, that would be fabulous. I'd also love to see if uh, maybe create, we couldn't be creative and find some ways that uh, the BBA and its membership might be able to provide some support to the legal community in Ukraine as they deal with these and many other important issues. Um, 
And finally, I sort of note a couple of times how you talked about uh, uh, this was a, a, a long game, international criminal law. It's a, it's a long game. While we were in our discussion, my news alert popped up to say that a Dutch court has just convicted two Russians and one Ukrainian separatist for the July 2014 downing of Malaysian Airlines Flight 17. And that interestingly, one, uh, one other defendant, a Russian nationalist, was acquitted uh, in, in that proceeding that was taking place in the domestic courts of, of the Netherlands. Um, so uh, it just highlights uh, the, the, the link that the conflict has been going on there and the efforts of various uh, courts and legal systems to address accountability for atrocities being committed in that region. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the efforts are ongoing. Uh, and I have a feeling we'll be uh, dealing with this issue for a long time in the future. So with that, I would just very much like to thank you. We will certainly look at taking up uh, Dr. Ellis's uh, kind offer to come back and report again on, on uh, what's happening in uh, Ukraine after his visit uh, early next year. And thank you to our audience member, which uh, audience members, which really it was a, uh, I, I recognize some of the names, including at least one other Sealy alum. Uh, we have uh, uh, someone who is a, a refugee from the former Yugoslavia, who's now a practicing lawyer in the United States. We have people from large law firms, we have prosecutors, and we have solo and small firm practitioners like me. So it's uh, really a mixed bag that we have uh, watching today and listening. Uh, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.